Hello, and welcome to the League of Josh podcast. My name is Joshua, and I'm your host. This episode was recorded on June 17th, 2021. I am joined today by Trevor Reagan. Trevor is actually a wizard. When it comes to learning, he has dedicated blood, sweat, and tears into researching what it takes to expand our capabilities as individuals, and from there he has distilled this information into incredibly relatable and digestible synopsis of key concepts that is so consumable that it feels like watching Sunday morning cartoons. The guy is a modern-day alchemist, distilling sheer bulk information into pure gold. Honestly, I never push people to share my content with others because I believe that if what I produce is valuable, people will naturally connect their loved ones to it. But for this one, I urge you to give it a listen. And if you feel that someone you love doesn't feel confident in their ability to learn, throw this at them, give them a hug, and let Trevor's wealth of knowledge do the rest. Hello, everyone. Today, I'm talking with Trevor Reagan. Trevor is the founder of Train Ugly and the Learner Lab. After graduating from Duke University, Trevor went on to become a content creator and workshop facilitator. Trevor has delivered hundreds of workshops to all people of all ages of all walks of life. Being a voice of reason in prisons, with MLB teams, Olympic teams, Fortune 500 companies, and over 200 schools. Trevor is the co-host of a podcast with fellow learner, Alex Belzer, a graduate in economics and marketing. As a team, they effectively work through the dense literature based around learning, tackling the idea of growth from multiple perspectives. Today, we will be discussing some of these ideas, and hopefully we can lend some clarity to what it feels like to learn. Trevor, thanks a lot for coming on, man. Thanks for agreeing uh, to Thank to you. That's a, that's a good intro. You did a little research for that. I like it. I <laughs> copy and pasted everything from your website. So <laughs> thank, thanks <laughs> to you. That'll work. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'd like to dive in first with uh, finding out how you came on this path and how you ended up where you are now. Yeah, I, I've always been in like the sports world. Both of my parents were coaches. And so I think Growing up in that world, you're always curious about development. It's like, how do I get better at basketball? How do I get better at football? So I think that's always been around. And that's just like kind of the price of admission for being a part of the sports world. And then maybe another big turning point for me, I had this dream like my whole life to play basketball at Duke University. And that was like a pretty big goal looking back, probably a little out of my reach. Um, but I almost made it. Um, it was like this huge battle and journey I went through and I ended up being like the last person cut for the last spot on the team. And that like wrecked me <laughs> to be that close to achieving such a big dream. And I didn't really handle that situation well. It wasn't like a Disney story of then I made it the next year. It was like, no, I was super depressed and like really angry. But then now that that's happened a while ago, I can look back and be like, oh, that planted the big seed in my head, which was what could I have done better? And that question I think is one of the biggest reasons that I do what I do now. Um, I'd like to think a lot of the things that I've learned in the last 10 years of doing this could have helped me make it over the top and maybe they could help someone who's doing something else, uh, maybe optimize and maximize their development a little bit. And so that kind of drives me to do what I do. How do you rebound from that into doing what you're doing now? There's definitely a, an innate fear associated with being cut from a team like that after you put so much work and dedication into that. Yeah, I, like I said, I don't, that particular situation wasn't handled well at all. <laughs> so like, I wouldn't even talk to people for a while. Like it was really bad. Mm -hmm. And so I think if we're looking at resilience and bouncing back from like a setback, 
there are some skills you can build and things you can do to help you in that process. And I think either way, as long as time passed, you can look back and recognize the growth happened. And so I think anyone listening could look back at their life and look at major challenges and setbacks and recognize the growth that happened, maybe big, maybe small. The goal is when we're really becoming a better learner is we don't need 15 years to go by to recognize the growth. How do you start to like do it in the moment? And that's like one piece of the learning equation that I've spent a lot of time on. So I would like to think if I could rewind back and go through that again, I could have grown much more, maybe more efficiently than I did rather than just kind of like letting the cards like fly out onto the table and then I just so happened to grow. Um, and so, yeah, like some of the things that I've been learning lately would have helped me a ton with that. And they've helped me a ton with new challenges that I face, new pressures that I feel, uh, maybe not getting cut from a team, but more adult challenges. Yeah. There's this cool Zen principle that I really like, and it's called, it's just the principle of studying yourself. So mm -hmm. being aware, and I think that that ties into being mindful. So mm -hmm. being aware of your current state, both internally and externally, and feeling when you're closer to achieving your goal and when you're further away, mm -hmm. and the state of mind that you take upon yourself when you fail to achieve your goal or mm -hmm. when you do achieve your goal. 100%. And I think the biggest lesson for me looking back is just like, I would have like given anything to make that team and in that year. It was like the most important thing ever. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I didn't make it is why I get to do what I do now. And I wouldn't trade this for anything. Like right. this is way better than making that team because making the team is I'm on the team for a couple years and it's fun. And that was like the biggest dream of my life. But what I do now, I hit the lottery. This is the coolest job that anyone could ever have. I get to study learning and teach it to people. And so it's like, so many times we think like this, this goal we have is everything when the truth is there's like much more out there. And sometimes like falling short kind of rattles you and wakes you up and opens your eyes to other opportunities. And that's just kind of how life works. And so that was like one big lesson for me. Yeah. It seems that there's this need of failure that we have and by facing yeah. adversity and failing, it actually teaches us far more than maybe if you mm -hmm. would have made that team, like you said, you would have been on that team for a couple of years and then, you would have gone on to do something completely different from what you're doing now. And I find that interesting in the, in the mm -hmm. scope of regret in life where yeah. any, I, I don't, I don't have any regrets in life because I like where I'm at now. So all mm -hmm. of the things that have happened to me in my past, I just accept with open arms because yeah. where you are now is just, you, you, you can't really ask for more. There's this guy, Seth Godin. And I, I, I think he's like one of the most brilliant like thinkers and he was on a podcast. I think it was like the Tim Ferriss podcast. And Tim usually ends with like a set of questions. And one was like, what would you give like your 25 year old self? Like what, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice, what would it be? And he's like, nothing. Mm -hmm. Because I, all the stuff that I went through, the really hard stuff, the setbacks, those were all important to get me to where I'm at. And I love where I'm at. So I wouldn't change anything. And I think that's a pretty cool way to think about life. And then like, big picture with like this conversation we're having the question becomes like well what would be the tools to build that can help you do more of that mm -hmm. not to like go out and live a reckless life and like fail on purpose but like how do i maximize my failures i know i'm going to experience setbacks what are reasons i might not 
extract as much out of that as I could? And what are tools to build to help me like enhance what I get from the struggle? And that's kind of where I've spent most of my time lately. I think maybe the two biggest are like our mindset, our growth mindset, like our beliefs about our capacity to grow. I think so many times, especially when we're dealing with change and setbacks and challenge, we like start to doubt our capacity to build skills and learn stuff. And so building that growth mindset helps a ton. And then the other piece that I've been digging into lately is like how we interpret our emotions. I think society trains us to look at like our tough emotions, like stress, fear, anxiety is sort of like negative things that have all of these really like detrimental effects on performance, decision-making, learning. And it's true they do, but understanding that we can't really get rid of tough emotions, but we can change how we interpret them. Mm -hmm. And like, that's where we take the power back is like a huge skill that I think would benefit almost anyone. Uh, earlier this week, I talked to with my friend, Danielle Comrie, and she's studying grit and mm -hmm. mindfulness. And one of the things that we talked about was the, the inverse view of academic performance, where if you have arousal on your y-axis and athletic performance on your x-axis it's this inverse you of you're mm -hmm. a little bit aroused and that's where you're going to perform the best so if mm -hmm. you're not anxious at all you're not going to perform very well if you're way too anxious you're going to perform better mm -hmm. and i think something i would posit alongside that is the ability to reappraise your arousal or your anxiety and that can actually that can move the entire graph i think because if you're very anxious about something and you're able mm -hmm. to reappraise that in your mind that may enable you to perceive the situation differently and actually yeah. get you excited about it. Well, reappraisal, I think, is huge because I 100% agree about like this U shape. And the problem is, so Susan David, I interviewed her and she taught me about this. It's like, you can think of like type one emotions and type two. Type one is how I feel in response to the situation. Type two is when I start to have feelings about my feelings. And that's where it kind of compounds and doubles down. So it's like, I'm about to give a talk. I'm nervous. Okay. When I'm trained to believe that being nervous is a bad thing, which most of us are, mm -hmm. now I'm about to give a talk and I'm nervous and I'm like, damn it, I'm nervous. It's bad to be nervous. I must be nervous because I'm not prepared or I don't belong in this room or I'm too young or I'm not smart enough. And all of that starts to compound and that's making me even more activated, which is like sending me down the graph versus I'm nervous because I'm a human and humans get nervous when they give talks in front of people, especially a group of people you don't know. And especially when you don't know exactly how the talk is going to go. If I care and there's uncertainty and attention, I'm going to feel something. And so like that to me is reappraisal. What we're trying to do is avoiding those type two emotions. We don't have much control over the type one. We can get a little better, but through acceptance and reappraisal, we avoid like shaming ourselves for feeling nervous. And that's the big goal, I think. Mm -hmm. There's a, in volleyball, there's the fifth set. So if it's tied 2 2, you go into the fifth set, best of, and it's a race to 15. And a lot of the times, if you're the better team, everyone comes into the huddle after you lose the fourth set and you, everyone kind of goes, oh, geez, here we go. Mm -hmm. fifth set and something I started to do was come in and go this is awesome how exciting is mm -hmm. this we get to play a fifth set there there's so much fun there's so much emotion involved it's so much mm -hmm. energy that you're putting out and so I think yep. that was a, a way in which my the teams that I've been on have been able to 
reappraise things and change things from, oh shit, we're here. Yeah. We have to win this to, we get this mm -hmm. opportunity. This is great. Yeah. And I've seen like great coaches can do this in a huddle. Great teammates can do this in a huddle. Like I've seen high level Olympic coaches do this. It's like, own it. It's like, yo, I'm kind of freaking out right now. And I know you are too. I'm glad you feel something right now. It's like, we spent four years to get here and we really care about this. And like, it's a tight match. It's like, yeah, we care. And like, it, and if you wanted to double down on that, it's like, look, what I said earlier, it's like, okay, what are things that create that discomfort? It's uncertainty, struggle, change, attention, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And caring. Okay. If you don't want to feel anything, then don't do things that involve uncertainty and don't care. <laughs> so it's like, at the, it, it, like in a volleyball match, it's like, okay, if you don't want to feel like this, go play a fifth grade team. Yeah. You know you're going to beat them. There's no stakes. You don't care and you're not going to feel. So it's like caring is, or the feeling is sort of the price of admission we have to pay when we do things that involve uncertainty. And that's like the catch 22 of sports. It's like sports involves a ton of uncertainty, which is what creates all that discomfort. And there's usually an audience. So there's a tension. But if the uncertainty was gone, sports are the worst. If you knew you're going to win every game and make every shot, it's no longer fun. It's mm -hmm. no longer fun to compete or watch. So it's like the uncertainty is what makes it difficult, but it's the uncertainty that we love. And so you just kind of have to understand when I'm doing something that involves this, there's going to be a lot of tough emotions and getting good at understanding and accepting those tough emotions, I think is like a key skill. You touched on something a little bit and the uncertainty I think is also associated with fear. And there's this fear yep. of learning, this fear of being able to do something, especially when someone's first initiating some type of protocol to learn something. Say you're learning a language or you're learning a sport. There's always this fear that I'm not going to be able to do this or yep. say even, even podcasting, people starting a podcast. I get asked all the time, how do you start it? How do you start it? And my, <laughs> my advice is always just do it, just do yep. it and you'll figure it out along the way, but just yep. dive in, take that first step and then things start to get a little bit better. There's less of an anxiety. How do you think that is the, what do you think is the best way for people to deal with that initiatory and fear? So that's the other side of reappraisal that doesn't get enough attention. So what we've just been talking about is how reappraisal can maybe help my performance in the moment. And this is like sort of a different angle, same idea, but it's like, how does this affect my decisions and learning? So when we believe that, these tough emotions are bad. So it's like, I shouldn't be nervous or I need to be fearless, same thing. Mm -hmm. And I'm faced with an opportunity. Uh, you can apply for this job. You could start a podcast, you can whatever. And I feel those tough emotions. I'm likely to interpret that as a sign that I'm not ready or I'm on the wrong path. And sometimes we just don't do the thing because we give our emotions so much power. We're like, oh, if I, if I was on the right path, I wouldn't feel like this versus, of course, I feel like this is I'm doing something new. I'm stretching out of my comfort zone. I have never done this before. I'm going to feel kind of weird. And so in reinterpreting the tough emotions there, it's like we're more likely to start the thing. And I think adults and kids struggle with this. We start something and then it feels weird and we assume we're doing something wrong. It's like, ah. If I was on the right path, I wouldn't feel like this versus 
of course I feel like this. I'm in the struggle phase of learning. And any time we build a new skill, there's some struggle up front. We're going to feel weird up front. That's normal and part of the process. And so whether we're talking about the, the feelings in the moment, the, the feelings before a big challenge, we want people to understand that's human. It doesn't mean you're on the wrong path. doesn't mean you're doing something wrong. And even succeeding early, I've found often leads to a fixed mindset in people where if they're super successful when they first start off, especially as young kids, when you first start off a sport or you first start off in, I don't know, math or speaking, any of those things, if you're really good right at the beginning, that might actually have yeah. detrimental effects down the road if you're not good at other things because nobody's good at everything. And so you end up mm -hmm. sticking to those things that you were good at right off the start. And, and it's important to get into the weeds of like, there's a difference between fixed mindset and fear, and sometimes they work together. So like early success could create a fixed mindset, which is I don't need to grow. Look, I'm a natural at this. I don't need to practice. Mm -hmm. Early success could also create fear, which is I'm valued for performing well, and I never want to put my, myself in a situation where I don't perform well. So that's actually different then a fixed mindset, but then sometimes right. it's a combo of both. So like fixed mindset is, I think, important to like unpack a bit. The big idea with fixed mindset, it's the idea that I have what I have and can't really change it. Now that can be, I'm a natural, I don't have to practice, or that could be, I'm not a math person and I can't change that. Either way, the belief is, the action isn't required or the action isn't useful because I can't change. Then the fear stuff is I'm not a math person. Therefore I fear putting myself into math situations or I always have to be perfect and I fear challenges. And so it's like, it gets really messy when you get into the weeds there, but it's kind of important to, to separate them out. Now, sometimes it's both, but maybe more times than not, it's maybe one or the other. And depending on what that causes, it's like a different conversation. It's like, if someone's really dealing with fear, that's one conversation. If someone's really doubting their capacity to grow, that's a different conversation. And so it's good to be kind of specific of like, okay, what is really holding me back in this situation? And how do you address those? Actually, first I want to ask, how did you come into contact with the growth mindset and Carol Dweck literature? Because when you you, you came to Thompson Rivers a few years ago, which is where I played yeah. volleyball. And so I, yeah. I was able to watch you give a lecture there. And I thought it was just unbelievably interesting. And I thought you developed a lot of really cool ideas. And at the same mm -hmm. time, it was something that I thought was more common knowledge than it actually is. Because I had yeah. been within the athletic world for so long that a lot of these ideas mm -hmm. had become innate within the teams that I was on. And mm -hmm. a lot of the programs that I worked with just used them because they were the the best mode of action for growth. Yep. And so hearing you come in and say, well, these are, these are topics that aren't as prevalent as they could be or should be in our learning yeah. environments. I, my mind was just blown that not everybody knows about this stuff. Yeah. It's like a lot of this is like very human and you can name things, different things. And, but the truth is people probably a thousand years ago were thinking about this stuff and writing about this stuff. Like none yeah. of this is very new. But the important part is to like start to connect dots and kind of create a, a language around it so people get it. As far as growth mindset, I was lucky because it was almost 10 years ago. Um, I don't remember how, I think my mom had a copy of Dweck's book. And this was, 
this was kind of before growth mindset really blew up. And so I read like half of the book mm-hmm. in like one night and I was like, whoa, <laughs> like this makes a lot of sense. This is giving me a lot of answers of why I am the way I am and different situations and how I dealt with those situations. And so I just woke up in the morning and emailed her and she responded in like five minutes and I did a huge interview with her. I talked to her for like three hours and I did a few of those because I was like, I think there's something to this. And so I got really lucky. It it would probably be hard to do a three hour interview with Dweck now um, that I got to kind of like read the book and then talk to her. And that helped me a ton because when a topic blows up like this, it's sort of like a game of telephone that sometimes it gets watered down and we lose sight of like what her research is actually about. And I made a ton of mistakes in, in teaching uh, the mindset, like idea and concept to people. But over time you start to recognize those mistakes. You start to understand like, Oh, here's like a better way of explaining it or here's what the research is actually about. And so through meeting Dweck and then practicing a ton, I think, I've gotten to a place where I'm pretty good at explaining it, but also good at showing like how growth mindset plays in the bigger role of learning, like as a whole. I had a girlfriend and she was reading mindset by Dweck before I had, I knew a little bit about it, but she was reading it and she came to me one day and said, we have to watch Seabiscuit because (laughs) Dweck uses that in the book. And at the end of the movie, she bawled because she never, she had never felt that that, idea had ever been apparent to her that she could get better at anything that she could grow at anything yeah and i think that that's something very cool that you are you are doing as well as dweck and all of these other people that are interested in the the learning Mm -hmm. mechanism i think it's very cool yeah and i think that's the the area of the growth mindset community that i've tried to spend the, the most time which is okay there's a lot of people that could tell you what a growth mindset is and provide the evidence that shows that it's beneficial And most people stop there. It's like, here's what a growth mindset is. And here's a table that shows what happens when you have a growth mindset and you should have a growth mindset. (laughs) Like that's how I used to teach it too. Now it's here are the benefits of growth mindset. A growth mindset is the belief I could grow where I've tried to spend my time is, well, how do you build that belief organically? It's usually not a poster on the wall. Like what conversations do you actually have with someone to help them believe in their capacity to grow? What does that look like? Mm -hmm. And I think there's a lot of ways to get there. I think one sort of underrated, one underrated tool we could use to build this belief we could grow is like a little bit of reflection. The truth is everyone listening to this right now is really, really, really good at lots of things. We all are, we're like learning all the time, every week, every month, every year we're growing. Yet sometimes we don't recognize the growth or give ourselves credit for it. And so an exercise that we do in our workshops, and I love doing this with adults is like, okay, 90 seconds on the clock, share three things with your neighbor that you are good at. And adults have a lot of trouble with this. Like you see blank faces, they're like, ah, I don't know, am I good at stuff? But in like forcing them to have that discussion, they start to identify a bunch of skills. Some are big and some are small. And then what you want to point out at at the end of that exercise is, look, out of all the skills that you just shared, they all have two things in common. Once upon a time, you weren't as good at that thing as you are now. And that was changed through practice and experience, which is proof that you learned the thing. 
And so this seems like kind of a simple exercise, but there's a ton of power underneath it. It's like, look, the core of a growth mindset is the belief I could grow. And that's a backdoor way of reinforcing that belief. It's like, I believe I can learn stuff because I have learned stuff. Like right. The proof that you can learn is the fact that you're listening right now on this call and you do what you do. It's like, if you weren't a great learner, you wouldn't be there. And so I don't know. It's like, we're all learning all the time yet. Sometimes we don't see it. So that reflection is a good tool. And then you mentioned the other, which is like kind of looking at it through like the neuroscience lens, which is like, look, if you get into the research of neuroplasticity, the research is crystal clear. Like if it's a skill, you can get better at it, period, end of sentence. Now we are going to go at different speeds and maybe land in different places, but like Literally, I interviewed Michael Merzenich, who's known as like the father of neuroplasticity. He's been studying brains since 1970. And he just flat out said, absolutely everyone can get better at virtually any skill. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean you're going to master every skill, but you could get much better than you know. And that's like, I think one of the most empowering things you could really like take to heart and teach others. And to me, that's the foundation of an authentic growth mindset. It's like, growth mindset is saying, I believe I could grow. And then the neuroplasticity research is saying, you can, you absolutely yeah. can with the right type of action and a little bit of patience. There's some so unbelievably cool research into neuroplasticity. There was one, re there was one paper that was looking at the, the vestibular system and how the, the, essentially the bones in our inner ear fluid, they, move to tell us where we are in space. So when you spin around and you get very dizzy, that's because those are all jumbled up. It's the same thing with mm -hmm. vertigo. Vertigo is when these rocks are dispersed throughout your ear where they're not supposed to be. And something I, I heard on the Andrew Huberman podcast was he talked about how that actually initiates neuroplasticity is when you move around in ways that you're not used to moving around in. And that could even be a, mm -hmm. a, an, example that play, of, an example of how important play is when, mm -hmm. when in initiating neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. There's like a lot of like key ingredients and, and that one is sort of like venturing out of the comfort zone a bit, that mm -hmm. stretch, that challenge, that struggle is like an essential ingredient to changing our brain. And same rules, like a good way to think of it is like the same ingredients that you need to change a muscle are kind of the same ingredients you need to change your brain. It's like, how do you change a muscle? How do you get stronger? You exercise it. Like you do the thing. You don't watch someone exercise. It's like, no, you exercise. Right. Uh, there's struggle built into exercise. It's like you run a little farther, run a little faster. You add some weight. You shrink down the recovery time. Like we're essentially struggling on purpose to challenge our body. And then we're patient. We know like I'm not going to get jacked overnight, but I have to like work out for a while to see results. And then you could flip it and say, well, similar ingredients to change in your brain. I need to do, I need to practice the thing, not just observe. I need some struggle. That challenge keeps my brain out of autopilot. It challenges it in a different way. And then I need to stay patient. So many times we try to learn something twice and it doesn't work. And we're like, yep, I must not be able to do that. But that'd be like doing one set of push-ups and then waking up in the morning and you're like, I'm not bigger, can't grow. <laughs> it's like, obviously we wouldn't do that because we know it takes some time to, to change our bodies. Same rules apply to changing our brain. And so it's like a big chunk of my job is to just like help people remember what it's like to actually learn. We do these things and then we forget. It's like, 
yo, this takes some time and it's going to feel weird. And we've done it. And then as we grow older, I don't know what happens, but we kind of forget how that system works. We expect change to happen overnight. We feel weird and then assume we're doing something wrong. And so a lot of this is like, look, we're great learners out of the box and we need to kind of go back to these like we're not born with concrete skills, but we are born with the capacity for growth and we're pretty good at it out of the box. And then we kind of lose it as we grow older, but we can get back to that and we can like understand these truths of learning and apply them no matter how old we are. I had a roommate that I used to work out with all the time and the dude's just an absolute monster. And something we, a principle that he always worked on was that you're never going to see the results of an exercise until three months down the line. And that's all contingent on your sleep habits and your eating habits and all of these other things. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just getting into the gym and working out. It was getting into the gym, working out, sleeping properly, yep. eating properly, doing all of these other things outside of that. And then in three months, you're mm -hmm. going to see a little bit of growth. Yep. And that's a good way to think about it. It's like there is a sweet spot there, though, because the other side, I'm just looking at reasons people don't learn stuff. Mm -hmm. and. Yeah. This idea of like the 10,000 hour rule, I think has done way more harm than good because it's like sometimes another game of telephone was played there where the yeah. original research is saying this, but the way Twitter interprets it is something else. And through the game of telephone, it becomes, you need to spend 10,000 hours to get good at something. It's like, no, you don't. It's like, depending on the skill, you could get scrappy and get pretty good at something in a week mm -hmm. or a month or a weekend, depending on what it is. And so sometimes this mastery becomes an enemy of learning where it's like, oh, I can't do this because I don't have 10,000 hours or I don't, I can't do this because it, it would take years to get good. It's like, first we should change the goal. You don't have to master something for it to help you out a lot. You just have to get kind of good and you could get kind of good in relatively short amounts of time, depending on what the skill is. And I think if the goal, even if the goal is mastery, setting the target at kind of good is the, the best way to get there. Because one, I'm more likely to start and uh, think of it in, in like volleyball. It's like, okay, you want to add a new serve. And maybe some people are like, oh, I, it would take me like a couple seasons to get good enough to use this serve. And I don't have that much time. So I just don't do it versus if I can get kind of good at this serve, I can start to integrate it and I could start to do it in scrimmages and in practice and pretty soon games. And if I can meet that threshold of kind of good and get to the integration state, the, the skill is mine. And then every time I do it, I get a bit better at it. Um, so that's kind of like a better way to think about learning, I think. Mm -hmm. I also like the idea of learning as a, as a concept rather than a concrete thing. So if I get a little bit better at this serve, maybe that also translates into my approach and the way that I do other things. I talked to a guy, Taylor Averill, who's on the men's Olympic team or men's. Um, he's, a, he's on the VNL roster right now for the men's team. Mm -hmm. And he talked about what he would do in practice. And a lot of time it was more play. It looked like play to the other guys and it was play to him, but the other guys mm -hmm. thought he was just jerking around and he was actually working on stuff. He said, I know the concept of what I want to do. I want to hit the ball with a high hand and close off and I know where I want to go. So he's moving all over the court doing different things. And so mm -hmm. I think that's a good idea to bring into learning is that it's not only about the result that you're going for with that thing, but also how can that translate to anything else that you're doing? hundred percent. And so 
when I interviewed Michael Merzenich, uh, the neuroplasticity researcher, so a lot of the conversation was about, yes, like when you learn something new, you're essentially building these pathways and, and your brain restructures the pathways and then you can fire the pathways better and that's how you build a skill. But then he says, what we're starting to understand is not only are like your connections and pathways plastic, like they change, but he goes, the machinery in your brain that controls learning is also plastic, which means anytime you learn something, not only do you get better at that thing, but you're becoming a better learner in the process. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not saying learning to juggle is going to make you better at public speaking, but I am saying every time you learn a skill, it makes learning additional skills become like a little more efficient. And so when you just take a, a big step back and say, okay, learning is a skill. If I can spend more time in this learning zone, acquiring skills, not only am I adding to the, like, like my bag of like what I can do, but every time I add something new, I'm becoming a better learner. And then it starts to snowball. And I think that's huge to understand. I think probably one of the best examples of that for me is learning languages. And if you learn Say, say you learn one Latin language, that makes it a lot easier to learn other Latin languages because they, they have such similarities. And then it becomes this thing of you see similarities between the two languages and then you understand that there's a rule that's based on a higher order language. And so you can essentially transplant what you've learned in this language towards this other language, which snowballs your learning so much faster. 100%. And then if you even go a layer underneath that, every time you learn it's a reminder of what learning is like. It's like, oh, I started and then I hit a plateau and then I felt weird, but then I adjusted my tactics and then I kept trying and then I doubted if I could do it, but I kept doing it and all of a sudden I could do it. And it's like, yeah, I need to be reminded of that. And so like going through that process keeps me fresh, which is why I think some of the best leaders and best coaches are also some of the most hungry learners. One, in being hungry learners, they keep getting better at what they do. But two, it's a good reminder to them. And they, I think, bring more empathy to the table when they're working with athletes because it's like, yo, I'm in the trenches right now too. I know that this isn't always easy or fun. And they're better at leading people through those trenches because they're in them themselves. You're touching on this idea right now of modeling and how to model a environment for learning. How, what, what, through your experience, what are the best environments that you've seen to create modeling from leadership towards the people that they're leading? I think there's two good stories I have about why modeling matters. Um, if I'm working with a group of leaders, we're going to have a lot of conversations about their individual fears, their individual fixed mindsets, and their individual skills that they need to build. And there's a reason for that because in the end, to become a better learner, we need to understand those things and take those actions. And that's the key to improving the learning environment. Um, it's like, without a doubt, the most important variable in any group to predict learning and success is psychological safety, period, end of sentence. It's like, that's what you need. Uh, psychological safety is like, I feel like I matter in this group. I can be myself and I can take risks. I can ask questions it's really hard to grow if you don't feel psychologically safe. And so then the question is like, how do you build psychological safety? Well, there's a lot of things you could do, but I think that maybe the most efficient, like small adjustment, high impact is through modeling. 
So probably the best learning environment I've seen is uh, the U.S. Olympic women's volleyball team gym. And so I, I go out to Anaheim as much as I can and observe them and, and, and learn from them. And Karch Karai is the head coach, kind of a legend in the sport of volleyball. And he has lots and lots of like one-on-one -on -one meetings with his players. And at the end of every one-on-one -on -one meeting, he asks a question. He asks, how can I be better for you? And so I kind of like heard about this and observed this. And on the surface, I was like, oh, that's cool that he asked that question. You probably get some good insight from your players. Like, awesome. But what I didn't really connect until recently is not only is he going to get some good feedback by asking that question, but what he's really doing, he's modeling. Mm -hmm. So if you play for him and every time he meets with you, he's asking, how could I be better for you? How could I be better for you? How could I be better for you? It's now safer for you to ask him for feedback someday. Modeling builds safety. Um, another great example. So a couple years ago, we had this challenge. We called it the anti-talent show, which was basically like, all right, pick something you can't do and practice for two weeks and like see how good you can get. And this school from Kansas City, they like ran with it. So all the students and teachers at the school participated in the anti-talent show. So it's like, yep, pick a skill you can't do for two weeks. We're practicing and then we're going to have an event, the anti-talent show and show everyone what you learn. So some students like learn to juggle and some learn to skateboard and some learn to paint and some learn to recite poetry. And of course, no one mastered their skill in two weeks, but they could all do it. They were all better at it. So I visit the school after they do this project. I'm sitting around with the students and I'm asking them like, hey, like, what did you like about this activity? And most of them were just bragging about the skills that they learned. Like one kid's like, look at me juggle and he's juggling his shoe. And then this girl raises her hand, seventh grade girl. She goes, the best part of the anti-talent show for me is that I got to see my teacher struggle and that helped me understand that it's okay for me to struggle too. Damn. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> like that was one of those moments that I will never forget because like, she's absolutely right. And to me, that's the power of modeling. The teacher wasn't learning the same skill as the student. It wasn't, hey, student, this is how to ride a skateboard. The teacher was modeling something even deeper, which is like the willingness to struggle, to try something new, to learn from mistakes. And by putting those actions on display, it became safer for the students to do the same mm -hmm. because modeling builds safety. This happens in like small, small moments as well. So uh, we've been doing a ton of workshops on Zoom like I'm living on Zoom. And the same thing happens every time at the end of the workshop. Does anyone have a question? No one says a word. But then one person asks a question and then seven people have a question. Mm -hmm. So the one person engaging in the vulnerable action made it safer for others to do the same because modeling builds safety. And so it's like big or small, that's something to take to heart for all of the listeners. It's like, look, if you're a member of a team, one of the best things you can do to improve the environment is engaging in these learning actions and behaviors. Not only does that help you get better at stuff, but it actually creates a warmer climate and better environment for the people around you to do the same. And so when we work with leaders, but also just anyone that's like a member of a team, it's good to have these conversations because I think 
we have more of an effect on others than we realize, and we could use that to our advantage. I think something interesting about that is that it initiates in a place of authority and bleeds into the entire hierarchy. And I'm sure that after that bleeding happens, then there's, there, it's not, it, it's serial as well. People yeah. go between one another. And so for yeah. an example with the U.S. women's team, I'm sure that that modeling that Karch does with his players also impacts the relationship between players. So if you're mm -hmm. able to say this person that I see as a master and myself as an apprentice, if they're able to display humility and ask me for my opinion on something, that means that maybe I can ask for someone mm -hmm. else's opinion that I see myself as potentially yeah. better than. It's, it's really powerful when the leader at the top is putting these actions on display for sure. Mm -hmm. And then, but then the, the cool thing is, we don't have to wait for that or depend on that because maybe some people are listening are like, look, the person on the top of where I'm at is never going to do this. Okay. We might not be able to change that, but my small actions could help the person next to me. It's like, mm -hmm. that can happen. That that's easy to say and hard to do, but like, that's, I think the cool thing about modeling, yes, it works when it's from the top down, but it also works side to side. Mm -hmm. You can also build. I mean, the, something that I've, that's been a goal for me with any team that I've worked with is building leaders. So not having a singular leader, I'll very rarely have a single captain besides someone that just takes the coin flip. And often mm -hmm. that's, that's decided more by the, the knowledge of the game and of the mm -hmm. referees and who can kind of keep their cool rather than. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so my idea with not having captains is building leaders outside of a hierarchy. And I understand the importance of having a hierarchy, but at the same time, it's very important for everyone to be a leader on the court and for everyone to be a leader in practice and on the floor. So teaching mm -hmm. guys actually how to model that and how to build that, that yeah. psychological safety within the group, I think is super important. It's huge because the alternative is like, oh, I'm not at the top. I don't matter or right. my actions aren't relevant but that couldn't be further from the truth. It's like, oh, you matter. It's like everyone can affect the group. Everyone can affect the environment in a positive and negative direction. And so it's really important to share these with like all members of a group because if we're on the right page and doing the right things, it's like, no, we can certainly have a positive impact on this team, whether or not we're technically labeled as the captain or not. I want to dive in a little bit too creating a why and what the impact of that is for learning. I, I talk a lot on here about the, the dopamine system and how having a why and having a big overarching goal that maybe is a little bit farther out of your reach than you would like it to be is actually better for you than having a small goal. So obviously mm -hmm. there, there's a, there, there needs to be a balance between the two where you have a large overarching goal yep. and that results in higher levels of dopamine. And then you also want to have goals intermediately so that you maintain motivation throughout the process of achieving your higher order goal. Mm -hmm. I think the way I think about it is like, I call it like big why, little why. So it's mm -hmm. like big why is especially for like people, coaches, people in the sports world. It's like, look, we want to have a positive impact on people's lives. Like if they go through my program, I, I want to change kind of who they are, not maybe who they are, but like have a positive impact on their life. And like, that's a big why. And then the little why is like, what is the purpose of this drill? What is the purpose of this talk? And so both are important because both provide fuel. Um, I think one thing you see this in the, like the corporate world is 
people get so caught up in the big why, which in the end is just like, we're going to make the world a better place. It's like, okay, cool. But like, what's the little why of this project? And so getting clear on like both is, is great. And I like how you talked about goals that way, because I, I couldn't agree with you more. And then the layer I would add to that is like, sometimes it's important. And this is just something that I realized a, a couple months ago um, at the end of a workshop, I was like, okay, I'm going to give you 10 minutes and I want you to just like identify some skills that you want to build. How are you going to put all this theory into practice? What are some things you want to learn? Specific skills you want to build. And then we come out of the brainstorm and this one dude's like, I want to be the top seller in this group. And someone else is like, I want to write a book. It's like, uh, okay, those are goals. <laughs> yeah. And there's a difference between goals and skills. There's nothing wrong with the big goal. I want to write a book, be the top salesperson, whatever. Then my challenge is like, well, what are the skills that could support that goal? And that's a useful thing to think about. So I think it's good to have the big goal, the little goals, and think about, well, what skills could support those things and help me on that journey? How do I be intentional and try to build those skills, adding those tools to the toolbox in pursuit of writing the book or winning the game or whatever it may be? Okay, so what you're doing there is building your whys around a process. So you're both orienting by process and outcome. Mm -hmm. And in that way, you're, I think that's a good way to look at it. If you're looking to develop a full human being, because even if they don't achieve their big why of outcome, then they've still gotten markedly better at the process oriented goal. 100%. It's like, okay, if the goal is to write a book, and I'm being intentional about, I want to study storytelling. I want to create, I want to be really engaging in how I explain content. And so I'm going through this process. Maybe I'm building habits of consistency and figuring out how do I make myself sit down for two hours a day and write. So, okay. If I'm going through all that, even if I don't end up writing a book, it's like, guess what you can use every day of your life? Discipline, storytelling, communication that's probably beneficial. (laughs) And and so like, that's how like, uh, that's why I'm like always kind of taking the conversation back to skill development because um, I just think it's like, those are the things that are everlasting where maybe we've fall short of the goal. Maybe we don't, I think we should have them. And I, I think you, you nailed it perfectly. I don't even have to like repackage that. It's like kind of the whole person is having the target, building the skills, creating this process and pursuit. And so, that sort of is our safety net of whether I hit the target or not, I'm growing and that will help me hit maybe the next target or next goal that I have because I'm adding these skills during this journey. There's this really awesome story that Terry Crews tells that I like a lot. And someone asks him how he starts working out. Terry, how'd you get so big? And he says, honestly, I hate working out. I I hate it when I first start off because you go back to the gym and you're a lot weaker. You can't do the things you did before. You don't look as good as you did before. Mm-hmm. All these other things. So he says, I really like reading my magazines though. So I would go to the gym and read my magazine in the gym for two hours. And then I'd go home. Mm. And then I'd come back the next day. And I'd go and I'd read my magazine for an hour and 55 minutes. And then I'd go and work out for five minutes. Mm. And then I'd go home. And he did that over and over and over again, just by blocking out that time. He was, yeah. finding, he was finding his discipline in the gym 
by associating with a different form of discipline that he actually enjoyed and built those two into each other mm-hmm. until he was doing the action that he that was his original goal. Yeah, I think a lot of the research around building habits is just like mind blowing. It's like, hey, however much you think habits matter, multiply that by a hundred because it's like they matter so much. But then the way we think about lasting action or sustained action is kind of flawed. So like the way I thought about it my whole life is like, oh, you can create sustained action through willpower. It's like, you just got to want it. And every time I started something, I would fail. And then I'm like, I must not have wanted it enough. It's <laughs> like, but that's so wrong because that's not how you like create sustained action. You need habits. It's like you can willpower your way to creating a habit, but then over time to make a lasting change, you need habits. And so understanding like different tactics to building habits is super interesting. It's not rocket science. And that's one approach. They call it like stacking habits. So it's like, well, take something that you like to do and start to stack on this new behavior or action that you want to build. So like you want to maybe stay in touch with your family on the phone more often. And I really like going on walks. Now, every time I go on a walk, I call my dad. It's like, okay, cool. I'm like doing this thing that I enjoy and stacking on this thing that I want to do more of. Um, maybe the, the most valuable thing that I learned, I interviewed Wendy Wood, who's like the world's leading habit researcher. Um, I would say James Clear is probably the best at explaining the science of habits, but Wendy Wood is the person doing most of the research. And she's like, in the end, it's kind of about understanding our environment and friction. So it's like, if you want to do something more, make it easy to do. And if you want to stop doing something, make it hard to do. And so that word friction is sort of like the core of all like behavior change and trying to adjust our habits. That reminds me of the concept of nudging that Daniel Kahneman touches Mm -hmm. on think fast and slow, where there are some countries in the EU that will have you either opt in or opt out of things such as organ donation. Yeah. And if you have to opt out of something, so if it's, if it's innate within the contract that you're going to donate your organs, but you have to opt out, the organ donation, the organ donor rate is going to be far more than Mm -hmm. in a country where you have to actually opt into something. So being able to nudge yourself by the setup of your environment is also unbelievably useful. It's so underrated and it's so small. It's like when you start to like get into the behavioral econ side of things, it's just like, like just, there's just studies of like, I think there was one where they had people and there was like, a bowl of apples and a bowl of candy and in one group they put the apples closer and the the candy farther away and the other group it was flipped and the amount of candy that the group ate that it was closer is like off the charts it's just like and it was just barely out of reach and then there's like another one i found of like if your gym that you work out in is like closer than like two kilometers or a few miles there's like a threshold of a few miles Mm -hmm. where if it's farther than that, you work out like hardly ever. But if it's in that range of close where it's easy to get to, or it's on the way to the school or work, you're going to work out way more because it's just like friction is everything. And so you use this of like, okay, you want to eat better, get rid of all the healthy food in the house because if the cookies are there and you know, they're there, you're going to eat them or even making it less visible. And so like, 
I'm trying to like drink less. And then I realize it's like, oh, I have like 10 bottles of alcohol <laughs> in my cupboard that I see every day. And so when I'm sitting there and bored, I see it. It's like, oh, that'd be good. Now I just put them away and I don't see them and I don't drink as much. And so it's like our environment is so important to understand and how like little adjustments adding and taking away friction is like huge. So I think on that line, there's also the topic of heuristics. And so one of the, again, back to that Daniel Kahneman book, he talks about priming. Mm -hmm. So if you walk into a car dealership and you say, hey, I'm looking for a car and your car dealer says, okay, come with me. And he shows you this, he, he shows you a, like he shows you an Audi. He shows you a $500,000 car and he's mm -hmm. like, this, this is one car and you go, oh man, I, I think this is a little bit far outside of my price range. That's, that's where you've been primed. That's where you've been set. And yeah. that's the price range that you're going to hold in reference to any other car that he shows you. Mm -hmm. So if he shows you a $20,000 car, then you can come down to maybe 10,000. You can mm -hmm. find that $10,000 car. But if he shows you a $500,000 car and he shows you a $20,000 car, you go, yeah, this is it. I love this. This is the one that I want. That's yeah. uh so my co-host on the podcast, Alex, he comes from like the behavioral econ like mm -hmm. world. Like that's what he studied. And just like little stuff like that, it just blows my mind. And so like, in essence, it's like behavioral econ is saying, we think that we're always going to make rational decisions, but the truth is we like hardly ever do. Yeah. But understanding that is good. It's like, okay, understanding the different tricks we can play on ourselves and others, I guess, to like <laughs> play, work with our nature rather than try to like work against it. And that's a lesson that we should use in like almost all of these like topics that we've touched on in this whole conversation. It's like the fear stuff. Working with our nature is saying, I am a human. I'm going to feel weird when I get out of my comfort zone and do things that involve uncertainty. And getting good at working with that versus trying to suppress your fear and your emotions, which is almost impossible. It's like understanding my nature and I work with it rather than against it is almost always a better approach. And the same rules apply to building habits and all this. It's like, look, if the candy is there and it's close to you, you're gonna eat the candy. Yeah. Working with my nature is understanding I have to get the candy out of sight. Like, I'm not going to just win this battle every single day if I can see the candy and it's in front of me. So understand my nature, work with it, not against it. And I love that lesson that Alex taught me, but that's like a cornerstone of behavioral econ. But I think it also applies to a lot of these learning conversations we have. There's this concept that Alan Watts proposed, and it's called the, what was it, the, the concept of infinite rascality and understanding that you are a rascal, a non-rational operator of your operating system. And so yeah. anything that you do, you're just gonna be a little monster about it. And that's the best way to look at yourself because then you have some type of humility towards yourself and you can accept mm -hmm. your flaws. And in accepting your flaws, you're actually opening the door to building a better version of yourself. I think it's so important. And you just started being nicer to yourself versus like, damn it, I always eat this candy. I must not have the mental fortitude to avoid it versus, of course, I eat the candy. I'm a freaking human. <laughs> it's like, we're going to eat the candy. And so it's like, it's not that I'm a failure. It's like my environment isn't working in my favor and I can change the environment. Same is true with working out. It's like, I, I always set the New Year's resolution and I stick with it for a month, but I never sustain it. I must not want it enough. I'm not tough enough versus, 
okay, for a month I can depend on willpower, but I need to start building the habits to sustain the action. So it's like, I'm showing more empathy towards myself, I guess, when, when you're understanding that like, look, we're just not as rational as we think we are. And that's normal. I had a conversation a few weeks ago with a friend, Owen Leader, and we talked about drug addiction. And one, one of the concepts that came up pretty consistently was why the, the question isn't why do people take drugs, but why don't people take drugs? There's a, a really interesting study where they placed an elect they placed an electrode into the brain of a rat that would trigger the nucleus accumbens, which releases dopamine. And they then wired that to a lever and the rat would release the rat would press the lever releasing dopamine in its brain until it died. You could put it with a, a another rat that was in heat. You could put food around it. You could put anything in there and it would just sit there pressing this lever. And so anytime that I, and my, so my, the way that I think of drug addiction is not why do people get addicted to drugs, but why don't we get addicted to drugs? Why, why don't we sit around all day snorting Coke and having massive orgies? Why, why do we do anything besides those things? Right. Yeah. I have no idea what the answer is, but it's like, it's one of those, it's one of those things. And I've like heard that idea before and you're like, damn, true. It's like, that's so true and so powerful. I, I don't know but it's fascinating to think about. Yeah, there's some higher order draw from, from something maybe outside or within us that pulls us mm-hmm. towards something greater than ourselves, which is mm-hmm. interesting mm-hmm. To, to contemplate maybe. I wanna talk a little bit about quality versus quantity. It was something we talked about a little bit earlier with mastery and this idea of needing 10,000 hours versus there are people that I know that have put 10,000 hours into something and aren't the greatest at it, but I know that they've put 4,000 hours or 1,000 hours into something else that they're super passionate about and they work with intent towards and they're far better at that thing comparatively than the thing that they work yeah, uh, quantitatively with. Sure. So there's a lot of ways to think about it. So one side of the equation is like, is there a purpose? Is there buy-in? Do I see the, do I like actually want to learn this thing? And that's going to like help me like extract more from the action. It's like, look, I took lots and lots and lots of Spanish growing up, but I didn't really care and didn't see the value of learning it. And I learned nothing. If I would have understood the value, I would kill to be able to speak Spanish. It would be huge if I could speak Spanish. And if I would have known that I would have, extracted more out of it. I could have taken the same classes, same teachers, same homework assignments and got way more out of it because I cared and saw the value. And so that's one piece is like, and that goes back to purpose and why. Now, the other side of the equation is talking about practice and the quality of practice. It's like, how do you structure a practice to optimize it and increase the quality of the actions that we're taking? And I've done a little bit of work in that field which I think is like fascinating. And so a lot of the things that we think create good practice uh, are actually false. And it's sometimes more times than not the opposite of what we think. So one idea is in, in, in this research, there's a difference between learning and performance. So performance is what you see during practice and learning is what sticks tomorrow or what shows up in the game if we're talking about sports. And oftentimes, 
the things that increase practice performance actually decrease learning. <laughs> so uh, an easy way to think about it would be, let's say I have a presentation and I wanna like practice this presentation. If I wanna increase practice performance, I should do the presentation with no one around because then I don't feel pressure and I should just run through it like a hundred times straight with my notes. And by the 99th time, I'm going to be killer at it. I have my notes. There's no one here. I feel no pressure. And I've done it 99 straight times. Cool. I bet that performance during practice is really, really high. Am I prepared to give my presentation on Friday when it matters to people? No. Okay. What, how could I increase the quality of my practice? One is I got to get rid of my notes because I'm not going to have my notes when I do the real thing. Two is when I do the real thing, I don't get to do it 99 times and then they get to see the hundredth. I kind of have to do one fresh. So to increase the quality of my practice, I have to space out my reps, even though it feels better to stack them on top of each other. I have to space them. And so also I could maybe give the talk to people, even if it's friends, family, my mom, just having to explain it to a human with no notes and spaced out. I'm starting to make my practice look a lot more like the performance. And when I do that, I'm increasing the quality and I see more transfer from the practice to the game. So what happens is when there's this huge gap between what my practice looks like and the variables I experience when I have to do the thing, I might see good practice performance, but I'm not going to see much learning. And so then the goal is like close that gap. Uh, sort of the metaphor that put me on the map is talking about the zoo tiger and jungle tiger. And one way to think about it would be like in sports, the game is like the jungle. It's unpredictable. It's wild. There are problems. There's uncertainty. There's a lot of variables that make a game chaotic and wild. The problem in sports is oftentimes we sort of practice like the zoo. It's predictable. It's easy. I'm in a box. I have everything I need. I look good. I feel good. There's not much struggle. There's not much unpredictability. But essentially what we do is I'm going to train you in the zoo as a coach. And then on Friday, it's the jungle. Well, what would happen if you took a tiger from the zoo and put it into the wild? It's screwed. And so <laughs> the way to to use this analogy or metaphor, whatever it may be, is like, okay, the jungle tiger learns to survive in the wild by spending time in the wild. I can use that same format when I practice. It's like, if I need to be able to deal with these variables in the game, how do I start to introduce some of those variables into my practice? And in doing so, I increase the quality of the practice itself. So that's one piece of the puzzle. The other idea is to realize when we're performing in a game, of course, we want to kind of be on autopilot. We want to get into the flow state. We don't want to be like thinking about my shot mechanics while I'm shooting a three-pointer when we're playing it, our rivals in the scoreboard zone. So we kind of want to be in that autopilot flow mode. Autopilot is the absolute enemy we're trying to avoid during practice. Yeah. Because when my brain slips into autopilot, it's like empty reps. I could be doing something a bunch of times, but if my brain isn't engaged on that action, isn't focused on that action, it's sort of, it would be like working out with no weights at all. So high action, but little struggle. And so then the question is like, well, what are things to do that can take your brain out of autopilot? One is you can space out the reps. 
So like if I read a chapter and immediately reread it, what happens when you reread it? Your brain is like, oh, I know this, 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 because I'm kind of on autopilot versus if you read the chapter and then read it again the next day, created some space, you're more engaged the second time, more focused the second time versus the stacked reps. And the other one is to like increase a little bit of variability into the practice itself. And so like, rather than shooting the sh same shot a hundred times, I should shoot this shot, move a little, shoot this shot, move a little. And introducing some of the variability automatically takes my brain out of autopilot. So like in basketball, they found so many teams used to like shoot like 50 free throws at the end of practice, shoot 50 in a row. It's like, okay, is that like the game? No. Are you going to slip into autopilot doing that? Hell yeah. What's a better thing to do? Still shoot 50, but shoot them two at a time throughout practice. That's way better. Same amount of reps. Doesn't add any more time to the practice, but that minor adjustment, two at a time, more game-like, so more like the jungle. And two at a time means I'm focused on those reps and not just after I shoot three, my brain's into autopilot and it's rinse and repeat for the 47 more that I have to shoot. So th through spacing and variation and introducing game variables, you start to optimize and improve the quality of the practice itself. That was a long answer. I'm sorry. That's perfect. That's exactly what I was looking for. And that's not <laughs> only good advice for coaches, but also for athletes. Something Danielle and I talked about was that, that differential between how you want to perform in a game versus how you want to perform in practice. When you perform in a game, you should be in a flow. It's similar when I, when I have conversations with friends, when I do stuff like this, I, I step out of this room and have absolutely no idea what yeah. we talked about. I have no idea what I said. I have to yeah. go back and rewatch it. Mm -hmm. And a part of that is the, the difference that you want between performing a skill in front of people or with stakes on the line versus when you're practicing something. And as an athlete or as someone that's learning something, if you slip in autopilot, that's a, a warning sign almost that you're not actually learning anymore. It's something you yeah. need to push yourself a little yeah. bit further outside of your comfort zone. And something, mm -hmm. that I, something that I found interesting about the neuroplasticity literature is that frustration is part of the learning experience. Mm -hmm. So I, I talked about this as well. I'm, I'm training a bunch of my dogs to do little fun tricks. And I have this blind dog he's blind and deaf so i have to train him strictly through behavioralistic methods so it's all like skinner box type stuff and mm. so i just i he has a little room that he eats in and i sit in the room and wait for him to get a little bit closer to doing the skill that i want him to do in the end and the closer he gets the more that i the more that i give him mm. and then the closer he gets consistently the less i give him until he starts doing the next thing mm. and so it's almost this idea of anything outside of the desired anything outside of the desired action is failure and we're going to actually succeed very little of the time but it's that failure that paves the pathway to success 100% and that's why it's like okay we know that there needs to be like that frustration that struggle that like tension which is why and my challenge to people listening is and this is how i failed for a while, which is I got really into this science of quality practice and I would create drills and practice schedules and like throw people into that. But I didn't spend the time to prepare them mentally for it. 
And so it's like, technically this practice is really well designed and scientifically, this is a better practice, but we didn't spend the time teaching them about how to deal with tough emotions, that it's okay to feel scared. It's okay to feel tension. It's okay to, so it's that, that combo of the mental side of learning, probably the stuff we talked about for the first 45 minutes of this talk, coupled with the quality practice. And so this is a concept, I haven't really said this on any podcast or wrote about this, but I'm working on it now. I kind of see it as a pyramid of the bottom of the pyramid is growth mindset and the emotion stuff, like understanding emotions, being willing to reappraise and accept them. So those would be the bottom of the pyramid. The next piece, maybe above those things would be understanding like resilience and grit. Like how do I like get the most out of a setback or challenge on top of that. So those would be the mental parts of resilience, growth mindset, and the emotion stuff. Those all work together. That's the foundation we all need. On top of that is environment. So that's habits. It's like, okay, if I really want to get good at something, I have to know how to design my environment for sustained action. Cool. And then at the very top of the pyramid is quality practice. And so it's like, in that pyramid, that's the key to great learning. You have the mental growth mindset, grit, emotion. You have the environment, habits, and you know how to improve the quality of your action and practice to get the most out of it. And I think if any one of those pieces is missing, you're probably not going to get as good as you can. The Trevor Reagan pyramid of success. Be your best when your best <laughs> We're is needed. Working on it. <laughs> I'm super excited to see it. <laughs> under where, construction yeah yeah where do you think are other areas that you've missed things in the past and you've learned from those mistakes now in in the in the guise of teaching people how to learn yeah i so the biggest one was here's a a good practice full of struggle and challenges but you're not mentally equipped to deal with it then the other was sort of like uh and this is, this is maybe the next mistake I made was like the just do it approach. It's like, you need to be the jungle tiger. You get it. Got to get out of your comfort zone. You got to struggle. Do it. Okay. Now, like phase three, the better approach is, yeah, we need to be the jungle tiger. We need to struggle. We need to deal with change challenges. And we need to purposely stretch out of our comfort zone. Of course, that's what we want to do. But let's talk about maybe why we don't do that. And like, let's be real, it's probably because of fear or lots of other variables. And so we're a little more calm and like collected in how we talk about this. It's no more, like there's no yelling or motivation. It's just like, no, of course, these are the actions we want to take, but we're human. And so what are the barriers to those actions? And what does the science say about overcoming those variables? So it's, I think there's more empathy in the message. It's not just this like hyped up, just do it approach, but it's just like more logical and science backed. Um, so that's been good. And then I think the thing that we're the best at now is integrating the different topics and showing how they relate. Um, and this is a common trap that everyone falls into and there's nothing wrong with it. It's how we should start. So when I started, it's just like, whoa, this thing is interesting. This thing is interesting. This thing is interesting. And I'd have like 20 things and now it's like, no, I talk about three things or four things, but I'm going to show how they relate and why they matter. Um, so that's, that's the other big improvement. And then I'll add one more thing. So this is, this is kind of how I came up with the pyramid. I was like, okay, there's probably a hundred different 
things or topics that you could teach someone that could like help them become better learners. So how would you create a filter to get to like the most important ones? Cause you can't do a hundred. So then I was like, I came up with like this criteria and this could be off and I've never really shared this with anyone, but let me know what you think. I was like, what would my filter be? I think one, it should be universal. So it should benefit pretty much anyone, not just like an Olympian or not just a first grader. So it would be relevant, universal to everyone. Two, it's high impact. So in making this adjustment, it actually has an effect on me. There's some things you could change and maybe the effect size is small. So universal, high impact. And then the third is it's feasible. It's like, it can be done. Mm -hmm. And I think so many times when we're thinking about adjustments and interventions, it's like, yep, in school, if the teacher to student ratio was like one teacher to three students, it'd be way better. Well, guess what you can't do is hire like that many more teachers. You, it's, it's not feasible. It would be a universal high relevant adjustment, but it's not feasible. And so that third one is important. So it's like, how do you find topics that are like free and accessible to pretty much anyone so that, that you can do them? And so then in running these topics through that filter, that's where I've sort of landed on the emotion stuff, growth mindset stuff, quality practice stuff, because most of those things are within our grasp. Most of those things are free and most of those things are like we can do ourselves. That sounds pretty well thought out. It definitely sounds like you've... Uh you've utilized the Pareto distribution of that 80-20. What are the yep. things that give 80% and what are the things that give 20%? And yep. so I think that integrating those are definitely a good, a good way to go. I had a conversation with Dalton Sanoski. He's a teacher and I've really been trying to figure out what's up with the education system. And I, I, I kept on kind of nagging on him. Like, what are, what are things we can do with funding? What do teachers want? What do, what, what do we want with funding? And I, I feel a little bit bad now. I think I might've harped too much on it because it was, it's something that I'm so curious about because yeah. there, so there's this, maybe you could call him a behavioral economist, but he's also an ecological economist and his name is Bjorn, Bjorn Longberg. And he come, he's out of Denmark. So he's out of the Copenhagen Institute. And something that he, uh, he did was take a group of UN economists and had them rank order the things we could do to best improve the world. Mm. And they rank ordered them by a cost benefit analysis. And the majority of those things ended up being early childhood development. Mm. And it's very similar in the um, antisocial behavior literature is the best thing we can do is intervene when kids are young. Mm. And that's the best way that we can teach kids. Because as you said, there's, we're, humans are so plastic and we're designed that way because we're upright walking creatures. So we had mm. to come out of the womb before we were actually ready to come out of the womb. And in that sense, we're so adaptable to every single environment. So mm -hmm. having those things that you just talked about where it's universal, accessible, and what was the last thing? High impact. So High impact. Like, if we do this, it actually matters. Right. So it's, it's, I think it's the most important thing that we could do in our modern society is finding those things. It's not mm -hmm. the, we're not trying to find the cure to everything, right. but if we can, if we can look 20, 50, 100 years down the line and say, what are the things that are going to best impact us in that amount of time? We're not mm -hmm. looking at ourselves anymore. We're looking at the next generation and the generation after that. What are the things that we can start to prescribe and implement now that's going to have those, those dividends pay off down the line? 
And I, I think that those are all very good things to look for. And it sounds like the, the, the things that you have selected to focus on are some of the most cost-effective and efficient things you could look for. Yeah. And I think it was by accident, but in, I think the, perhaps the most underrated piece of my job is the range of groups that I work with. So like within a month, it's like, there was a month, a couple of years ago where I went, I like work with an Olympic team, then learning managers from the United Nations, and then a group of kindergartners, and then like a group in a prison. So it's like, it'd be hard to get a bigger range of people. <laughs> yeah. But the aha moment for me is like, whoa, I talked about the exact same topics to each one of the groups. Mm -hmm. And like, that's like a good sign that you're kind of like on the universal, like these things actually are relevant. And so I think when you go deep enough and you're talking about like how we think about our capacity to grow, how we deal with our emotions, it's like, those are human things. Like everyone has to deal with those. And so that's good. And so I didn't set out to get there, but through lots and lots and lots of practice and conversations, you start to whittle down to like, okay, what actually matters? And I'm not even saying that those are the only foundational things. Like there's great conversations that we could be having about like sleep. Uh, we mentioned the habit stuff, like all of these things are huge and they fit the criteria. It's just like, these just so happen to be the ones that I've spent the most time on. Mm -hmm. One thing that I've been thinking of a lot lately is the degradation of a storytelling culture. I think that, that becomes associated with the, the atheistic tendency of the, of our current zeitgeist and that we, there's just not a lot of religion and whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is up for individuals to decide but a part of religion that we lose is storytelling so there's this I, there's this uh there's a line in the bhagavad gita and i'm gonna i'm gonna hopefully i get it right and mm -hmm. let me know what you think it's that which at the beginning is bad and in the end is good and introduces one to self-discovery is said to be happiness in the form of goodness. And that's just such a small and romantic line. And I love it because of how small it is. And the, so the, the Bhagavad Gita is a story of Sri Krishna, the, the Hindu God of the, the Godhead. So he's essentially the, the formless in everywhere, but he's formed in his current station with, Arjuna, who is in between two armies and he has to make this decision and it's an impossible decision whether he sides with his own people or he ends up killing his own family on the other side because mm -hmm. they're family members on the other side and he has teachers and grandparents and father and all these other things, right? So he has to make this decision and this entire dialogue happens between these two armies. So he's on this chariot and Arjuna is an archer. So he has a golden bow and what I, what I took the story to mean was that it's a conversation between an individual and their conscience. So Krishna being conscience and Arjuna being the individual. And within the individual, there are two sets of consciousness and there's the soul and then there's the super soul. So the soul is the higher version of ourselves that we could strive towards. And it's a moralistic test, text essentially in that it's asking or telling what is the best way to live our lives and the most efficient way to live our lives. So in, in that parable that I, I just mentioned in the, in that, in that little line, it's saying something 
you're, you're, it's when you start something, it's going to be a poison. It's going to be really tough. And then over time it becomes nectar. So at the beginning of something, it is poison. And at the end, it is nectar and introduces one to self-discovery. It is happiness in the mode of goodness. So by sacrificing something momentarily and moving towards that in the future, it actually becomes better. We talked about that a little bit with that positive feedback loop where when you start something and you're not very good at it, over time you become a little bit better at it and then that makes it more fun. Mm -hmm. And then you practice more and then it becomes more fun and you practice more and it just becomes, your your face gets blown off, you get better so fast. And so that's a... That's like, honestly, that's learning in a nutshell. I think it's Mm -hmm. like, I like the scariest part of learning is the truth, which is you're probably going to be bad first. Now, as far as how bad depends on your current skill set and what it is you're trying to learn. But the truth is, if you're going to learn something new, it's going to be hard and you're going to struggle. And so then it's like, can I move through that? And in moving through that, that's where the growth happens. Like, Sometimes people are like, it's okay to struggle. No, we're saying you have to, you have to struggle. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the price of admission for growth, whether it's a muscle or a skill. And so in going through that is where the growth happens. And like, like you said, and that is like that journey of moving through that struggle is where you acquire this growth. It's where you get good at the thing. And like, that's how you get to this end goal that we're, we're taking on. And I think like what you said about storytelling we did like a little podcast on this and it's one of those topics that I want to like circle back to, which is like humans are wired for stories. It's like stories are like one of the best teachers because like our brain activates in a different way when we hear a story. And so as coaches and teachers, we need to understand that. And like, we should be telling way more stories. It's like, if you want a concept to stick, if you can tell a story around it, it's way more sticky. One, they're going to be more engaged when you're telling them, which means more information is going to stick around and it's easier to remember next week. Mm-hmm. And so my favorite book on storytelling is called Story Worthy and it like blew my mind. It was like the coolest book ever. And I go back to it all the time, which is basically like, here are some ideas that can help you tell more and better stories. And it's just like, pfft, I think it's huge. I think one of the the greatest example of that of that is music, and mm-hmm. we're able to if you if you take a, a list of words and scramble them. If you if, so, if initially they're in story mode, and you give that set of words to a group, they're going to have a higher recall than the group that you give that same list of words to, but you've scrambled them. Mm-hmm. So being able to put things into a narrative form allows us to remember things and the best example of that is music. Mm-hmm. I, I did a, a meditation retreat a few years ago and it was 10 days of silent meditation. And <sighs> I, I remembered songs that I had, was sure that I had never heard before Whoa. or I'd heard, or I remembered a line of a song in my day-to-day life. And then while I'm in this meditation, I can remember word for word, the entire thing. And mm. it's this, and it's, it's stories. The greatest mm-hmm. songs are stories. And I think it was, Maybe it was Jay-Z, maybe it was Tupac, but they were saying that the best rap songs that you come across are the ones that you listen to 15 times and every time you learn something new. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's such intricate knowledge in storytelling. And yeah. similar to that, that line that I gave from the Bhagavad Gita is 
so there's there's this original idea that humans have to conceptualize into something so it's sacrifice and we didn't start off by just sacrificing cattle sacrificing lambs pigs all of these other things that had to come from somewhere else and i think that that comes from an internal understanding that to give something in the moment is to gain something in the future mm -hmm. and then we actually manifest that in behavior and once we manifest that in behavior then we can re-manifest that in storytelling but it mm -hmm. takes that process and maybe it's far more complicated than that i i wouldn't propose no, that, that i know sense. what actually goes on in the human brain but <laughs> i think that storytelling is just one of the most unbelievable things that you can do for especially the young mind and something i've been trying to do more recently is memorizing poetry mm. and it it has developed in me some kind of soul of the author i can feel the beauty that they are displaying when i'm able to recite that and like it, it just helped a ton i find it just 100 so percent. Cool. i think stories and metaphors it's so it's like what do people remember the most after my like workshop it's not neuroplasticity it's jungle tiger because yeah. like that's a metaphor like you could see it and when you explain it about the the zoo tiger that goes into the jungle like it's not the best story but it has elements of a story and people remember that way more than if i was like the research shows that you need to experience some contextual interference in order to optimize the quality of your practice which is what we're saying but we're talking about it through a metaphor and through more of a story and so it's going to stick more mm -hmm. um, i think it's one of those like underrated things and as far as why it is not sure but it's like it's low-hanging fruit we could all be way better at telling stories and we could all tell way more stories which is why i think story worthy is like the best that might be a great interview for you matthew dix uh we had him on a podcast and he's the author of that book i think you two would have a really killer conversation and he's pretty easy to get in touch with he might have been like my favorite interview we did for season two of our podcast that's cool. That's awesome. Thanks. I'll, yeah. I'll reach out to him. You should. It, it, I, I would love to hear where you two take a conversation because, I mean, his stuff is good because he's like, the way we think about stories is all wrong. It's not about like a huge moment. It's about a small moment of transformation. Um, and so he like has these rules that are like, oh, yeah, it, it becomes more accessible to people. Um, but yeah, he's, he's amazing. Cool. All right. I think that's all I have for today. But Trevor, where can people find you? If you go to thelearnerlab.com, um, you can find pretty much everything that we've talked about is either in a video or article or podcast. Um, all that's on the website and my contact information is there as well. Mm -hmm. All high quality podcasts, high quality videos. Absolutely love it. Thanks a lot, Trevor. Really appreciate I your appreciate time. It. This was awesome. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, man.